22nd of February 1993. Karen McKenzie and her three children, Daniel, Amara and Katrina, are all hacked to death in a crime so shocking that the actual details of these killings are sealed by the courts not to be released to the public. This shocking act will not only affect the rural Western Australian town of Grenoff, but it will shock the nation and the world. This is the story of the Grenoff family massacre. Host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, tonight, Islanders. A warning that tonight's case will discuss the murder of children, and I know this may affect some, so I just wanted to give a warning before I start. As I said in the intro, the actual full detail of what went on during the early morning of the 22nd of February 1993 has been sealed by the courts as too gruesome to release to the public. So I guess the best place to start with is at the beginning. Grenoff is a historic settlement situated in a floodplain 400 kilometres or 250 miles north of Perth, Western Australia, and 24 kilometres or 15 miles south of Geraldton on the Brand Highway with a population of around 800 people. If you have a look at it on Google Maps or Google Earth, you can see it is out in the middle of nowhere. So it was here that Karen McKenzie, 33, had decided to try to make a life for herself in what would be described by some as a run-down house in Grenoff, Western Australia. Although it was a bit run-down, Karen was determined to make the place a home for her and her two children, Amara 7 and Katrina 5, who were soon to be joined by Karen's first child, Daniel, who was 16. He'd been brought up by Karen's mother since he was around two years old. So here the four of them were trying, as we all do, make a go of it. Daniel, who had a total disinterest in formal education previously, enrolled in the local school and was keen to finish year 11 and 12, which for non-Aussies is around the 17 to 18 year old level of school just before you go to university. So Daniel had realised he needed to grow up and become responsible for himself and was looking forward to a better future. Little Amara and Katrina were lovely little girls full of life and loved their mum. Karen McKenzie was a full-of-life, well-liked, friendly person and was always willing to help out others. Her mother described her as happy and always laughing. She was good at school and loved music, nature and the great outdoors. At 15 years of age, she became pregnant with Daniel and after a couple of years she found it very hard being a single mother. She gave up care of Daniel to her mother, Barbara Merchant. At 24 years of age, she meets who would be the father of her two girls, Andrew Allen. But that relationship would ultimately break down and Karen did the best she could to raise her two daughters. She would end up finding, as I said before, a rundown place in Grenoff, Western Australia. Although it was a bit run down, it was all she could afford, but Karen was determined to do the place up and make it a home for her and her two daughters. Although Karen was a good mother, 
She did hang around a lot of people that were into drug use, and as such, Karen did dabble in drugs herself. You'll understand more later in the story what sort of people they were. At the end of 1992, Daniel, her 16-year-old son, had decided that he wanted to go and live with his mother over in Western Australia, as he had been brought up by his grandmother in Queensland since he was around two years old. Karen was excited that Daniel was coming to live with them, and Barbara, Daniel's granny, brought him a coach ticket, and the next day he was off to live with his mum. Now, this is about a 5,000 kilometre or over 3,000 mile journey. So it was a several day journey and back then you would often get on a coach rather than fly long distance just because of the cost. Daniel settled in well and Karen was so happy that he was becoming part of the family Uh, He was sort of like a big brother to the girls and he was becoming the man of the family. Now, as I said before, some of the people that Karen knew and hung around with were into partying hard, taking drugs and drinking. Probably not the most upstanding members of the community, but as she did like to use drugs occasionally, these are the kinds of people you'll end up gravitating towards especially in a small community such as Granoff. On Valentine's Day 1993, Karen anonymously sends a bunch of flowers to her boyfriend Shane Easto and attaches a poem. I'll read it out the best I can as the copy I have, some of the words are hard to make out. Buddha, what did I do? Care too much. To be in your arms ain't so rough. Being yours could have been enough. What happened, babe, scare you off. Like a diamond, you're just too tough. Bye. Shane, of course, knows who it was from and is a bit confused about why she wanted to end the relationship. As far as he was concerned, everything was fine. Ah, well... Maybe Karen wanted more from the relationship and Shane wasn't ready to stepping up and becoming a family man. Anyway, we now get to the 19th of February 1993. It's a Friday and Karen is attending a party at a friend's house in Geraldton while 16-year-old Daniel is at home babysitting his two half-sisters. The party goes well into the morning and she leaves at around 5am, getting a lift with a friend, William Mitchell, back to her house, even though they'd been arguing with each other earlier on in the night. Now, warning, warning. At around 3am on the 22nd of February, 1993, a car approaches Karen's house. This wakes up Daniel, and he goes outside to see who it is. Now, Karen's house is accessible by a long dirt track far from the main road, and unless you knew it was there, you would never stumble across it. So Daniel wakes up on hearing the car approach and goes outside to have a look, wondering who the fuck it is at this time of night. The car stops and a man gets out. As Daniel approaches the guy, He is suddenly hit across the neck with a tomahawk axe and drops to the ground. The attacker then hits Daniel several more times to the head and neck with the axe and then he walks over to the front door. Daniel dies quickly from his injuries. The attacker then enters the house and finds Karen asleep in the lounge room lying on her back. He quietly moves over to Karen and stands above her. He then lifts the axe and as he did with Daniel, he brings it down against her head and neck, the convulsions from Karen causing her to flip over onto her stomach. He continues to chop into her head and neck until she stops moving. 
After his frenzied attack, he then starts to go through Karen's things, looking for money and drugs. He finds some hand lotion and then returns to Karen's lifeless and bloody corpse. He pulls her body up so her butt is in the air and using the lotion, he rapes her. When finished, he walks to Amara's room where she is still asleep. Now most of this next part has been kept secret as it's too gruesome to release to the public. What is thought to have happened is that he again uses the lotion, rapes her and like Daniel and Karen, he uses the axe to brutally murder her. For fuck's sake, she's just a seven-year-old little girl. Next, the attacker finds five-year-old Katrina asleep in her bed. Again, as he did with Karen and Amara, he uses the lotion to rape Katrina and then he kills her with the axe. The attacker then goes to the bathroom and tries to clean up. He takes the axe and lotion, then walks out of the house. He gets in his car and drives off. Now, this must be one of the most gruesome cases I've ever researched. What kind of animal does something like this? The murder of four people, attacking three of them while they slept. Two of them just little girls. So this is the early hours of Monday the 22nd of February 1993. Later that morning at around 10am, a couple of Karen's friends are on their way to her house to help her fix the place up. As they drive up the driveway, they see what they think is Daniel lying on his back a short distance from the front door. The husband stops the car and gets out, but as as he gets closer to what he thinks is Daniel lying on the ground, he can't now tell if it is Daniel as the injuries to his face and neck are so severe. He yells to his wife to stay in the car. He then approaches the door of the house and yells out for Karen, but gets no reply. As his wife is freaking out, he gets back in the car and drives off to contact police. Again, this is back in the day when not many people had mobile phones and in remote areas like Granoff, there was coverage, but it would be patchy at best. So they drive off back to the main highway and find a shop and call the police. Detectives from the Geraldton CIB and Uniform Police attend the site. Nothing could prepare them for what they were to find. All they knew as they approached the site was that 16-year-old Daniel was dead out the front of the house and that there were three other members of the family that lived there, so locating them was their priority. As you can imagine... They have no idea if the offender is still in the area or even if they are still in the house. So with guns drawn, they enter the building. As they burst in through the door, they notice the body of Karen McKenzie lying on her stomach with the top half of her body covered with a bloodied blanket. They check for a pulse, but she's dead. They then go through the house and discover the bloodied bodies of little Amara and Katrina still in their beds. Even though this scene shocks them, the detectives know they have to keep their wits about them and secure the scene for forensic examination so as to be able to catch the animal that did this heinous act. The major crime squad from Perth are alerted and many more detectives are brought onto the case. The house and surroundings are searched to the minutest detail for any evidence that will help them find the killer or killers. It's not until 3am Tuesday morning that the bodies are removed and sent for autopsy. Three days into searching the house, 
they start to look for fingerprints using iodine fuming and they discover a palm print from what looks to be a right hand. After photographing the print, they cut it out of the wall to preserve the evidence. They then scan every surface with ultraviolet light and on the door near where they found the palm print, they found some greasy fingerprints. Now, when they take the greasy prints for further examination, they can see that it is a sorbeline cream, but its chemical composition is close to, but not an exact match with other creams in their database. Also, the fingerprints they found were from the tips of the fingers, and that is the part of the fingers that were not on on their files as well. So they had this fantastic evidence, but they would need to get clever to work out how they could extract what they needed. Now, they found that not only the prints were made from the cream, but swabs from the body of Karen McKenzie also found a similar lubricant. Now, this meant that whoever left the greasy prints had probably perpetrated the murders as well. So this is why it was crucial to try and match chemically both lots of cream. Now, things were falling into place for police, but extremely slowly. Now, as I said before, Karen's house was quite isolated and off the main road up a long dirt track. So the perpetrator would have had to have been there before as it was highly unlikely that a random killer would come across a place located as this property was. So they go to the usual suspects and first on the list was Karen's former de facto Andrew Allen. Now he was the father of Katrina and Amara. They find that he's been reined in up north at Halls Creek, which is more than 2,600 kilometres or 1,600 miles northwest of Grenoff. He'd been trapped there for days with all the roads cut off from the heavy rain. So it wasn't him. Next, they had to have a look at the drug scene in the area, which included not only bikey gangs, but Asian crime syndicates, as Karen did take drugs occasionally and she may have got caught up with something she couldn't handle. Now, other leads that police would get would be that there'd been a bit of an argument at the party that Karen attended a couple of days before the murders. Police would take statements from some of the party goers, which indicated that Karen and William Mitchell the guy who took her home in the morning, had a loud argument during the night. William Mitchell was 24 years old, nearly 10 years younger than Karen, and he had made a pass at her and Karen knocked him back. Now things must have settled between them as she was quite happy for him to drive her home at the end of the party. As I said before, They left the party at around 5am Saturday morning. They then drove the 25 kilometres or 16 miles back to her place. He was then seen leaving her house at around 11am. Another person of interest would be Karen's ex-boyfriend that she'd just broken up with on Valentine's Day. That was Shane Easto. Also, There was a guy that had called Karen on the Sunday night before the attacks and there was also a fisherman that Karen had spoken to earlier that Sunday as well. Now police were able to take fingerprints and DNA samples but DNA was very primitive at the time and was not much help. You could use DNA to eliminate someone but not to say with any accuracy that it was someone. Even getting the fingerprints that were on the door took weeks to be able to get any detail as they were on a roughly painted surface. And as I said before, they were the prints from the tips of the fingers. 
So any of the fingerprints they already had taken from people were largely unusable. And each one of those people that provided the prints would have to be tracked down and reprinted. So police had suspects, evidence awaiting analysis, and five weeks later, the funerals for Karen and her three children were held with the whole town in attendance. Even though Daniel had recently moved to the area and had resumed his schooling, all the students came to the funeral and made a guard of honour for him. The town was still in shock, and in a small town like this, suspicions and gossip gets around. People were uneasy. The palm print had been sent off for analysis, and when it comes back, it matched one of the persons of interest, William Mitchell. One of the problems with it being Mitchell is that he was there at the house on the Saturday morning. So yes, his fingerprints, or in this case a palm print, would probably be in the house. Police needed more. They needed some sort of break in the case. And didn't they get a weird break in the case? Police are called to the party house that Karen had had been to a couple of nights before the murders. The tenant has called them because when he got home, he found the house had been broken into and he found blood splattered all over the floor. Now you can imagine after Karen and her children had been murdered, to come home to find blood splattered everywhere would come as a bit of a shock. When police arrived, they found not only the blood splattered on the floor, but the wallet and car keys of William Mitchell. Next thing you know, Mitchell comes running into the house wearing only a towel, screaming that someone had attacked him. He was clutching his crotch, which was pissing out blood through the towel. Mitchell told police how he turned up at the house and three men suddenly appeared and dragged him inside. Mitchell told police how the attackers said they knew the party host killed Karen and they wanted to know where he was. When Mitchell told the attackers that he didn't know where the party host was, they then took a a filleting knife and tried to cut off his dick. Mitchell then told police he was able to break free and locked himself in the bathroom and waited for the attackers to leave. He then went and hid outside until he saw that the police had arrived. While in hospital, police interview Mitchell, and eventually they get him to confess that he made the whole story up, and that he had actually tried to cut his own dick off. He added that he had attempted suicide for personal reasons, so police ended up charging him with making a false statement. You can't make this shit up. Later, police are called to a caravan park. It may be known as a trailer park in the US, where cleaners found blood splattered in one of the vans. When they checked out the van, police found porno magazines, one of which had been slashed to pieces. They also found blood and semen. The caravan park incident was not released to the media by police, who were still in the process of re-fingerprinting 25 of the persons of interest they had not eliminated as suspects. At this stage, Mitchell was back at work after getting his dick sewn back on and police went to the property where he was working to redo his set of fingerprints. While they were doing it, Mitchell asked police why they were still going on with the investigation as he had read in the newspaper that the guy had been caught after acting strange in a caravan park. Now, this really sent a chill up the detective's spine as he knew that the caravan park incident was not released to the media. 
and that Mitchell was probably talking about himself being the murderer, basically confessing right there and then. So Mitchell was put under heavy surveillance while his prints were checked out. When the prints taken from Mitchell of the tips of his fingers matched the greasy prints found in the house, police knew they had their killer. At the same time, the greasy palm and fingerprints plus the swabs from Karen and the two girls were found to be chemically identical. It was the same sorbeline cream. So this pretty much proves that the cream that was on Mitchell's hands when he left the prints was also found on the bodies. Still, it is circumstantial evidence. Mitchell is brought in for another interview on the 28th of March 1993, more than five weeks after the murders, and is told his prints are linked to Karen's body. And at this stage, amazingly, Mitchell confesses to the killings. Now, you'd think being a copper, this is a great break. Warning, warning for the next little bit. Mitchell explains how on the Sunday afternoon of the 21st of February 1993, he is at the house where the party had been held the previous Friday night. He drank plenty of booze, swallowed a handful of prescription pills and twice injected himself with amphetamines. Crazy and off his face, he left the house around 2.30am and headed towards Karen's house. As he drove there, he was getting more and more worked up in his drug-induced frenzy. Once he reached Karen's house and saw Daniel approach him, and Daniel would have known Mitchell, so he would have approached him as a friend. Anyway, as he as Daniel approached, Mitchell struck him down with a tomahawk, cutting through his neck. While Daniel laid on his back, Mitchell continued to hack into his head. Mitchell then went into the house and saw Karen asleep on the lounge room floor and stood over her. And again with the tomahawk, he brought it down onto her head, repeatedly hacking away at her head and neck. He then raped her dead body. After that, he turned his attention to the two little girls and as you know, he repeated his attacks on them, killing them both and raping them. After that, he washed up, taking the tomahawk and tube of sorbeline cream with him so as to leave no evidence. As he drove back to Geraldton, he stopped to throw the tomahawk into the river and threw the tube of cream in a bin. He enacted a walkthrough of the crime scene for police and they say he did it clinically, methodically, and with re- without remorse. Totally free of emotion. Police divers were able to recover the tomahawk, which still had hairs attached to it. Although he confessed he did plan to kill the whole family, he told police he had no idea why he wanted to commit that act. This is a bit strange, as when he went through the walkthrough with police, he was able to recount even the smallest detail of the night. Now to me, what this seems like is he just could not get over being knocked back by Karen. I mean, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I think with the drug-fueled frenzy of getting a knockback, this is what set him on his course. Anyway, on September the 8th, 1993, Mitchell pleaded guilty at Perth's Supreme Court to four counts of willful murder and three counts of indecently interfering with a corpse and one of sexual penetration of a girl under eight. On the 14th of October, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of just 20 years. Now, not only am I enraged, but the people were enraged. But on appeal, the non-parole term was revoked 
and there was a ruling that he was never to be released, just like the Bernies. But Mitchell was able to get this overturned on appeal and he consequently became eligible for parole in 2013 with a three-year review in 2016 and, of course, again, 2019. In September 2013, Mitchell was refused parole. Attorney General Michael Mission stated that his decision to refuse parole was based upon the gravity of the crime and the safety of the community. He became again eligible for parole in 2016 and was refused again, thank God. But as required by statute, his next review by the board is due in September 2019. I mean, what the fuck? Look, I'm all for judges knocking off time for a confession and a guilty plea and I understand how the parole system is required so that there is some motivations for crims to turn their lives around and return to society. But when it comes to cases like this, nup, nup the fucking nup. Lock them up and throw away the key. Once you've done something as disgusting, as heinous as this, you lose all rights to be in society. Dragging families through the parole hearings every three years is just not on. There is a movement in the West Australian Parliament to look at the parole legislation, but it may take years to formulate. So as long as there is a strong Attorney General that will knock back any parole hearing for these kinds of scum, at least we know they won't be let out on the street. Now just a side note, while researching this, I came across a post on a forum by apparently one of the guys that was at the party house on the Friday night and who regularly hung out there. Now this is what it said. Years ago, there was an axe murder and rape of a whole family in my town. Single mum, one teenage boy, two little girls all got butchered. An acquaintance of mine was her last boyfriend, now that was Shane Easto, and was pretty cut up about it. So I went over with a couple of other blokes to drink piss and look after him. It was about 2am in the morning. We were all pretty maggoted, that means pissed or drunk in normal talk, and we started talking about how we'd love to get the cunt that did it, how we'd string him up by the balls, how he was supposed to have raped the two little girls multiple times, etc. A month or so later, one of the blokes at that table was arrested for the murders. Would never have picked him quiet and stoned off his tits that night. Like I said, hardly noticed the bloke, but he was at the table joining in our what-did-we-do-to-the-cunt conversation about five days after it happened. Not a good household, that one. The boyfriend died, drugs. Another one shot himself, schizo-insane drugs. Billy did the murders, and one other bloke ended up getting stabbed to death. Drugs. A lot of hard drugs at that place. Heaps of people passing through. So, apparently, that was somebody who was there on the Friday night party before Karen got murdered. Of course, it can't be verified as genuine, but I pretty much reckon it is. On another side note that is relevant to tonight's show is a petition which is now finished which was started by Kate Noir. Now remember, she was the girl that was able to get away from the Bernies and ultimately got them locked up. Now if you're not familiar with the Bernies case, I did do an episode on it earlier, so you can check that out. It was gruesome. Now I don't have permission to read this out. I couldn't get in contact with Kate, but it was public and it was her story. And It was also in the petition, so I reckon it should be fine. Now, this is from change.org. Reformation of parole laws in Australia. I am the woman that got away from David and Catherine Burney, Australia's worst serial killing couple. He hung himself in 2005. 
she has mandatory parole review board hearings every three years. I want these revoked, then greater reformation of parole legislation. My name is Kate Moir. I am campaigning to revoke mandatory parole hearings for murderers in Western Australia and to overhaul parole legislation Australia-wide. I am also campaigning to improve our justice system through the instigating of harsher penalties for violent crimes, including rape, pedophilia, grievous bodily harm, domestic violence and assaults, plus pushing for the introduction of uniformity of sentencing throughout the states of Australia. In November 1986, when I was 17 years old, I was abducted at knife point by David and Catherine Burney, Australia's worst serial killing couple, whilst on my way home from the Claremont Hotel after an evening out with friends. Twelve hours later, after being sexually assaulted twice and being certain that they were going to kill me, I managed to escape. My escape led to their capture and arrest although adamantly stating that I had agreed to go home with them and consented to sexual relations. They eventually capitulated and confessed to multiple rapes and the murder of four women. They were charged with four counts of deprivation of liberty and sexual assault and with four counts of murder for killing three women and a girl between October and November 1986. They were also charged with deprivation of liberty and two counts of aggravated sexual assault in relation to me. In February 1987, they were sentenced to four life terms for their murder of Susanna Candy, Mary Nielsen, Nolene Patterson and Denise Brown, plus 10 years for deprivation of liberty and 20 years for raping me twice. However, The life sentences effectively meant that their sentences of 30 years for my abduction and rape were forgotten. The court ordered that their life sentences were to be served concurrently, meaning they were only to serve 20 years before being considered for release. I always knew they would be considered for parole and maybe get out when I was only 37 years old. I have lived my life waiting for the day that they would re-enter society and their impending release has always haunted me. The crimes that they committed against me and the other women have never been far from my mind. I believe that if I had received justice, this would not be the case. He hung himself in Casuana Maximum Security Prison in 2005 but she has been up for parole four times since 2007, her latest parole hearing being in February 2016. I spent my birthday on the phone to the Parole Review Board. In Western Australia and in many other states, it's mandatory for murderers to be considered for parole after serving their minimum sentence and the maximum sentence of life imprisonment is 20 years in Western Australia. 20 years is not life in prison. I am championing the people's voice and speaking for all the victims who can no longer speak. I am speaking for the families, relatives and friends of rape and murder victims who are traumatised. On a three-yearly basis, as violent criminals are considered for parole, I am speaking for the husbands, wives, brothers, sisters and children who live in fear of their loved one's murderer being released. And I am speaking for everyone who doesn't want to be the victims of these violent crimes at the hands of a recidivist. I am campaigning for truth in sentencing as opposed to sentences immediately being reduced for a plea of guilty and time spent in remand. I am campaigning for no parole for premeditated murderers and repeat sex offenders and the revocation of mandatory parole. Murderers revoke their right to return to society upon taking another's life. Rehabilitation is not an option for the crime of murder. They have taken away the ability of another to live, love and enjoy life.
I demand that they, in return, forfeit their life and are punished with life imprisonment. Similarly, repeat sex offenders have shown they cannot be rehabilitated. I am also campaigning for harsher penalties for violent crimes such as murder, rape, pedophilia, assault and incest. Many relatives of murder victims have approached me from all over Australia. Their stories are traumatic and full of horror, sadness and injustice. For too long, the legal system has been geared and strengthened to empower the perpetrators of crime with lessening resources being allocated to victims of crime and society in general. Murderers get publicly funded Queen's councils to represent them whilst a poorly resourced police service and Department of Public Prosecution attempts to prove guilt and a sentence reflective of the gravity of the crimes committed. Too often, sentences are reduced on appeal. This is an election issue and I will be fighting this fight until at least March 2017 in, the Western, in Western Australia before campaigning throughout the nation. When I win this fight, I'm going to tackle other taboo issues such as domestic violence, the mental health system and the inequity and horror of the family court. I am advocating for victims and survivors of crime and their relatives and standing up for the underdogs. Well, this petition got 41,330 supporters. Now, this is the response from the then Shadow Attorney General at the time, who is now the Eternal Attorney General of WA. Here's John Quigley's response. February 24th. Thank you for making your voice heard on this important issue of parole reform for those serving life for mass murder or serial killing. Kate Moir, the surviving victim of the serial killers David and Catherine Burney, came to see Mr McGowan, the opposition leader, and myself, Shadow Attorney General, to explain that every three years when Catherine Burney comes up for parole, she is forced to relive the most terrific night of her life all over again. Western Australian Labor is pleased to make a new policy for this election. Labor's policy is to amend the Sentencing Administration Act which governs parole and provide that an Attorney General during their time of service can issue a notice to the Prisoners Review Board ordering them not to conduct a parole hearing for a mass murderer or serial killer. There is no intention of ever releasing these people to parole because for these prisoners, life should mean life. As a Labor Attorney General, I would have no hesitation in directing the Prisoners Review Board not to consider Catherine Burney in 2019 and therefore save Kate Moir from the trauma of having to relive the whole experience. For mass murderers, those who murder two or more people on the same day, or serial killers, those who murder two or more people on different days, there should be a hard and fast rule. Life means life, and under a West Australian Labor government, that will be the rule. John Quigley, MLA, member for Butler, Shadow Attorney General. Now, He did respond to the petition when he was in opposition, and Islanders, that means when his political party was not in power. They have since run and won the latest election, so John is now the Attorney General. I have reached out to him for comment on the state of play in regards to reforms in the Sentencing Act, but as you can imagine, he's a very busy bloke. As it stands today, and as far as I can see, Mitchell will be allowed to seek parole in 2019, dragging all that happened back up for the family and friends of Karen McKenzie. I don't doubt that parole will be denied by the Attorney General. However, it should be in his power to deny Mitchell seeking parole at all. 
changes to this type of legislation does take time. So I'll update when I get more information. As I said before, for crimes such as these, there should be no parole. Life should mean life and not four by 20 year life sentences served concurrently. Some people should never be let out. Now, did I say people? Sorry, I meant scum-sucking vermin. Okay, it's always hard to do the end of the show after such gruesome stories, but as with the Hungerford Massacre, it is the end of the show. Now, I'd like to first thank everyone for voting in the Australian Podcast Awards. We've made it into the top 10 finalists for the popular vote. So if you haven't voted yet, go to australianpodcastawards.com and then click on the popular vote link and vote for the island. You need to register first, but that's pretty easy. Get your co-workers to vote and your significant others. It's your island and I want to shout boom vagalanga to the world for all of you. The Island is a true indie podcast and isn't run by a huge network full of staff. It's a true sit-in-the-deck-chair-and-tell-you-a-story podcast. I would like to mention that my great mates Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder are also finalists as well as being nominated in the comedy section. Brod from Felon is also in the top 10 for the popular vote. Again, these guys are true indie podcasters. You can vote for more than one podcast, so I don't mind if you share the love with them as well. We'll take plenty of pickies when we get there uh, all together and we'll upload them. So please, there's only one week left to vote. Now, I think the votes end at the end of April. So you've got a few days. Get in there. Again, I want to give a big shout-out this week to Maggie James. Now, she's one of the greatest supporters of the island. And please, everyone, give a big shout-out to Maggie tonight. Also, to the new Patreon supporters to the island, we've got a, I want a big shout-out to Joseph D., Kimberly C., and Robin Water from the Trail Went Cold podcast. Now, if you like Unsolved Mysteries, then you really need to hook up with Robin's podcast. This is a must-sub. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. All funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. If you want stickers, koozies, pins or key rings, you need to email me directly. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to postage. This week, I will bundle bundle together a pack and price it up once the pins and key rings arrive, which should be only in a few days' time. All other merch, such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, all that stuff is at the shop, and that's truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, I always tell you about the tote bag I got for Kate. It's really good. And in New South Wales, we're getting rid of plastic shopping bags. So get yourself some tote bags. Thanks to everyone who's bought some swag. A shout out to Deanna from Twisted Philly Podcast. I see her daughter doesn't like her saying boom fuckalunga. Deanna's got the boom fuckalunga t-shirt. There's links to everything at my website which is truecrimeisland.com. So Patreon, iTunes, merch, all that stuff, go to truecrimeisland.com. Any issues, cambo at truecrimeisland.com is my email. Just send me an email. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, then show them the way and get them to vote. Join the Facebook closed group 
Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. Don't forget to check out the Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat and there are so many other podcasts you'll find on there on there as well. Hi to all the followers. Guess what? I got promos for Dark Poutine Podcast. I really love this one. You will as well. Also, I have another podcast called Murderish. Do yourself a favour. Check them out. Well, that's about it for tonight. So, this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say... Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Have you been bludgeoned to death with Ted Bundy stories? Are you choking on too many Hillside Strangler podcast episodes? As awesome as those are, cleanse your palate and add something new to your true crime diet. Why not try some dark poutine? a podcast from north of the 49th parallel. We cover Canadian crimes and dark histories. Some of the stories you may know nothing about, but they beg to be told. And, with Canada being the biggest, small country on the planet, we even have personal connections to some of the crimes and history we chat about. Join two real live Canadians every week as we serve up another helping of dark poutine. We are substantially creepy, sometimes meaty, Always cheesy, but very rarely sorry. So come on up north and fill your ears with some dark poutine. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at MurderishPodcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Murderish.